Now, gracious Father in heaven, we are thankful for this opportunity that we can gather together on this Lord's Day afternoon uh, for more uh, study in your word. Now, Father, we, co- we are coming to seek understanding and, uh, Lord, knowledge related to what uh, the word says about the civil magistrate. Lord, we're interested um, you speak to it, and Lord, we pray that we would submit to what we learn and that we might help others as well gain a more biblical understanding of the role of the civil magistrate so that we might be even able to counteract some of the um, degeneracy we see going on around us. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, I'm gonna read... Uh, from Psalm 2, uh, just that last couple of verses, again, this is something that we've looked at many times, at least I hope that it's being implanted somewhat in your memory. Um, it's certainly not my intention to belabor the point, but also at the same time, we are dealing with a topic that's not just misunderstood, but purposely neglected. And for that reason, the sharper we can hone our skills in speaking to this doctrine, the better, the better chance we have of making ground with others as we discuss this important doctrine. And of course, many Christians don't even believe there is such a doctrine in the Word of God. But we have at least learned differently. So Psalm 2, verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And how blessed are all who take refuge in him. And certainly there is this royal psalm that our Lord Jesus is speaking, or that's speaking about the Lord Jesus, but speaking about in particular his headship over the civil magistrate. Now that's what the psalm's about. The psalm is, is, concerns Christ, but it, it concerns Christ headship over the civil magistrate. Now, that being said, if you open, if you've you've turned uh, in your hymnals to page 684, you'll see chapter 23 of the civil magistrate, and that's the very first paragraph of the Westminster Confession addresses the origin of the civil magistrate. Now, in addressing the origin, that is, Who invented it? Who came up with the civil magistrate? Where did this idea, this political concept come from? Well, in paragraph one, it speaks to that and it helps us with a concise statement to that fact. He says, God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, okay? has ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. And to this end, 
has armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evil doers. Now, notice your footnote. Well, I don't know if the hymnals has footnotes. It probably does not. So I'm going to give you the scripture reference. The footnote to that paragraph is Romans 13. It's Romans 13. But notice, notice the content of the paragraph, and then we can um, correlate that with the footnote. God, the Supreme Lord and King of all the world. Now, there's certainly a declaration of God's, what, sovereignty. Okay. He is the supreme sovereign. He's the supreme Lord. Notice the superlative before the word Lord. Supreme. There's no one higher than he. Okay? Now, why is it important to maintain these distinctions? It's important to maintain these distinctions because God's connected to his creation, to what he has ordained to be. And he's the head. He's the supreme Lord, and there are lords under him. So he's not, it's not, it's, it's not an abstract. He's not absent and thus creates something that's, that's not related to himself. Does ever, do you see that? Do you understand that? It flows from him. It's related to him. There's a connection being made between God as the supreme Lord and king of all the world and the magistrate. And so we see now in the paragraph, so we have this statement of sovereignty, lordship. Now we have the statement of purpose. Now it gives us in this paragraph several purposes. Why is this the case? Why has he ordained the civil magistrate to be under him and over the people? Well, what's the first one? For his own glory. That's the first one. He chose, that is, it pleased God in his infinite wisdom to ordain a civil magistrate to be under him and over the people for, okay, for his glory. That is, so the relationship that the people have with the civil magistrate and the civil magistrate have with the people, what's the first purpose? For God's glory. So that, that begs the question of righteousness. It begs the question of justice. It, it, it supports the idea that there's no... Um, uh, there's nothing, uh, let's see, how's it? There's not this gap between God, the magistrate, and the people. That it's, there's a consensual connection being made between God as the supreme sovereign, the, the human sovereigns, right? The kings and lords of the earth, and then the people under them. And yet, there's a distinction there that must and is critical for maintenance because what happens if the civil magistrate thinks they're the highest law in the land? They abuse the people. But what we're learning, and reason 
Christian nationalism should be appealing to us for no other reason is that a godly magistrate is for the purpose of aiding the, the, their constituents, their citizenry in glorifying God. That's a good thing, isn't it? And all of this, this you know, um, blustering over whether or not Christian nationalism should even be in the discussion is just foolish, it's childish. It's so immature and it's, it is so short-sighted to what the scriptures actually teach. So that's the first one. Now another purpose is for the public good. But, you know, good in the sense of making sure that there's, well, public justice. Justice is a huge thing. What happens when I steal Aubrey's money? He needs, he needs justice. Let's just say he doesn't get it. Now he's mad and angry. He's upset with the judges and... You know, and that has its own effect. It flows out into how he treats all of y'all. But he needs justice. He seeks justice and he desires it. And he, he should be angry when he doesn't get justice. Because the civil magistrate and the court system is ordained for the public good. Another aspect is peace among men. I mean, if, if, if any person believes they can just go out and do harm or damage to somebody else for no reason at all, just because they don't like them or because they said something they don't like, I mean, that, that, that serves to have a very dysfunctional and dangerous community. And so the civil magistrate serves as protection along those lines for justice, protection, promotion of righteousness, and this is what it goes on to say in the third purpose. And to this end has armed them with the power of the sword. That is, they're to use it. They're to use their civil power for the glory of God and for the public good. And it says, for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. Now it cites Romans 13. That's, they only have one proof text there. And I think that it really only needed that one proof text because, uh, well, I take that back. There is another proof text that I want to cover that's related to this. But anyway, Romans 13, 1 through 4 is a, is a proof text given to support this and now there's another proof text, and that's 1 Peter 2.13. Um, let's look at the 1 Peter passage. We've, we've looked at it before, but I think we need to look at it in light of these propositions. If the civil magistrate, if this is the purpose of the civil magistrate, now I have something to aim for. I have something to pray for. I have something to advocate, correct? Now that I know this, now that I have this biblically sit down, set down in front of me, I understand the worldview at hand and now I can begin to promote it and defend it. 
And this is vital. Um, 1 Peter 2.13. 2 Peter, no wonder it didn't look right. 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So we see there in those verses that this proof text also supports the biblical origin and purpose of the civil magistrate. And here's how. He's not telling us, now he's not dealing with, this is a proof text given to a, a, a letter that was written to what Peter called the diaspora. These, these Jews were run out of the Roman provinces. Caesar kicked them out. And so now they're spread all over the place. While they're spread all over these regions, Peter writes to them. And then, of course, he's writing to Christians and he's saying, listen, here's how you're going to conduct yourself as you have been scattered. Here's how you're going to conduct yourself. You're going to obey the local magistrates that you're under. Now, of course, I always get the question, in everything? Well, in every good thing. In everything that's not sinful, yes. In everything that's wholesome in everything that is righteous, in everything that is good. Yes, we are to submit ourselves to these ordinances. Why? Well, because they weren't invented by men. They were created by God for his glory and for the good, you could just say, of righteous righteousness and for the punishment of evil. Now, do pagan governments get everything right? Of course not. But do they get everything wrong? No, they don't. Why is that? Can someone tell me? Why do pagan civil magistrates get many things right? Does anyone want to take a stab at it? Natural law. Natural law. Very good, sir. Why? Why is this so important? Because natural law is God's moral law. And the common man can perfectly, I'd say perfectly, in a natural sense, see that it's good to treat people kindly, that it's wrong to murder people for no good reason, that it's just to Protect your person when you're being unjustly attacked. That is wrong to take people's property. So on that basis and on that ground, and because God has ordained the civil magistrate for righteousness, we are to submit ourselves to even what we call pagan governments. Now, you might say, well, 
it really is not tit for tat even in our own justice system because we have so many laws that are grounded on biblical rules and principles. As most modern, many modern societies do that were once Christian. Those laws were derived out of the special revelation of God as his word. So not only was it natural law, but many of them were refined and honed by God's special law, by his revelation, okay? So, um, so it, we, we can't, we don't want to assume what many professing believers have assumed, and that is, well, if they're not professing Christians, we don't have to obey them. We can be rebels. Mormons were a lot like that. You know, Mormonism was a, against the law. Polygamy has been against the law forever in this country. And Mormonism was outlawed in one sense. And so they moved all the way out to Utah to get away from authority and sort of carved out for themselves in this wilderness, if you will, their existence. But it was against the law. And they were punished for it in many cases, rightly so. Okay. Um, I, I guess this, you know, be fine. So here's the thing. So we see that there is a huge benefit um, for civil magistrate. Now, another part of this, the civil magistrate has a interest in, or should, in the religiosity of the people. They have an interest in it. How so? When you, when countries look like their religion, let me put it that way. Countries look like their religion. So when we talk about America as a Christian nation per se, um, obviously it looks, it looks like a very weak church, doesn't it? It looks like a very compromised church. And would we disagree with that? I don't think we would. I mean, I don't think we could find great disagreement in that. I think we would see that by and large, the American church has suffered compromise, some apostasy, um, some, some backsliding, um, just, you know, there's been a lot of, of uh, effects uh, that has stressed the church and caused her to be tremendously weak in a public setting, in a public form. And so therefore, that's why you can have, that's why you can have all of these professing Christians act unchristian in given circumstances. Because the church is so weak. The church isn't practicing discipline. The church isn't doing her role in maintaining the peace and purity of the land. The church, you know, the civil magistrate has a role. The church has a role. The church has certainly failed in so many areas that we'll address in the book of Corinthians. But, but a nation will look like it's religion. In fact, um, a book that I thought about, if we get to a point where we're studying a book, 
we might study this idea of what is worldliness and how Calvinism affects the culture, okay? Because when you go to cultures that are dominated by Catholicism, it looks a certain way. What are some of those cultures? Latin America, Spanish, you know, uh, Spanish speaking peoples are typically dominated by the what? Catholic religion. And what do we find in these places? Speak out. What do we find in these places? Tyranny. What? Tyranny. Tyranny. I'll say tyranny. Okay, so what else? So we have superstition. All right, what else? What else? How about poverty? You see a lot of poverty in these nations? Isn't that related? Because your religion is going to affect what you think about work. Your religion is going to affect the way you think about your responsibilities and duties. What about the family? Does it affect the family? Of course it does, right? Um, Take India, for example. Has anyone been to India here? Okay. Was it clean? Was, was it dirty? Very dirty, wasn't it? Um, India, like much of South America, is rich in resources. Vast resources. And yet, India lives in squalor. Why is that? It's because of their religion. It's because of what Hinduism teaches about life and responsibility. So when you think, right, you, you, listen, when, when you think, you know, when, when you have this migration of culture, do not think because they are nice, that they think like you. And it's not simply, uh, you know, it's not about, it's not the the anti-culture, it's really anti-religious culture. Because in Hinduism, they believe in reincarnation. They believe in serving out your karma. If, if, If you're a beggar on the side of the road, you shouldn't get help because you're just living out your karma. You're just living out the bad things you did in a previous life. So we can't help you. That's why you see people starving. There's one of the reasons you see another, the Indian starving to death over there and there's cows everywhere. Why? Because they worship cows. It's sacred. They are by religion vegetarian or vegan. And again, if it's medical reasons, I think that's one of the dumbest debates the Christian church can have is over veganism. That is such a first world problem. It's such a first world issue. Unless it's a medical issue. I mean, for the church to even waste and squander precious breath 
on such a dumb topic about whether we should eat meat or not, or eggs or milk or all of the, again, it's America, PETA, all of this worship of the animal. It's just like Hinduism all over again. And it will have devastating effect upon the community. That's why you have to reject that stuff. It's why it's not neutral. Okay? When you, when you're, when you are addressing life and you're asking basic concepts, should I accept this? Should I reject this? How, how do I relate to these things going on around me? These are life issues that you're addressing, and there's only one place to go to gain the principles of that, the foundation of that kind of, uh, the answer you're looking for, and that's Scripture. Now, that's not to say that you're going to open up the Bible and it's going to say, veganism is found on page 1100. But I'm talking about the principles, the laws, the rules that you would use to apply the vast parts of life issues we gain from Scripture. And here's where I'm going with this. Religion matters when Protestants... Calvinists. Arminianism didn't exist when, product, when, when, when there was the reformation of the Catholic Church and, and those who had tried to reform the church, the Catholic Church, and those who had left the Catholic Church and whatnot and, and began preaching the gospel. And there was a resurgence in the Word of God being taught, understood, it being in the common language. Again, the reason it wasn't in the common language because the word was so sacred, nobody could touch it but the priest. And many of the priests during the Reformation couldn't even read. Couldn't even read themselves. It was by and large a very illiterate society. And they held those positions because they bought them, not because they were ordained to them. They bought these positions. When you have an ignorant population, when you have an ignorant people, you can dupe them with superstition. And you reduce them to superstitious activity because they can't read the word, they can't study the word, so they're reduced to lighting the candle and feeling close to God. They're reduced to, to some good omen happening and they're going, oh, that's an answer to prayer. Kind of thing. Why? Because they don't know what the word says about prayer and about perseverance and about patience and about how God answers prayer. They don't know these things. When you find this, this Christian movement coming out, this, this reformation coming out of the Catholic Church, and through persecution and through various providences being spread out all over Europe, being spread out into the Netherlands, being spread out, uh, even coming over into the United States, by and large, the people that were coming over were Calvinists. And Calvinists had a high view of Scripture. They had a high view of worship. They had a high view of, of human responsibility. In fact, 
B.B. Um, Warfield even, I can send the quote out, I think he even sums up the Christian life. He says, you know, people that want to just minimize that, but the Christian life is made up of duties and responsibilities. That these are the things we do. These are the, these are the things we, this is how we act. This is what we're supposed to do. Well, by and large, this, this, this was education. If you're going to read the Bible, if you're going to have a high view of the Bible, you've got to know how to read it. If you're going to read it and you're going to study it, you've got to know how to write. You've got to be able to put your thoughts down. And Listen, we're still translating books from Latin to English, from Calvin and many others. We still haven't translated all of Calvin's works. Did you know that? There are still dozens of books to be translated into English. Look at the, the rich deposit of knowledge that Calvinism produced during that period that we still benefit from 300, 400 years later. That's, that's the, the biblical faith we're talking about. And look at the effects it has had on society. The industry. You've heard me say this, and I'm going to emphasize it for the sake of the recording this afternoon. The middle class was created out of the Reformation. Before that, there were only two classes of people. There were the elites and there were peasants. That's it. There were those who had and those who had not. Well, the Reformation created a financially independent middle class of people that could benefit from the works of their labors. And why? Because the Catholic Church had only one sacred calling, the priesthood. The Reformation taught that uh, being a you know, plumber is honorable. Being a carpenter is honorable. Being a secretary is honorable. Being a, I mean, it taught that whatever God has called you to do, do to the glory of God, do it well, do it to the best of your ability, and you shall prosper from the labors of your work. Well, that come out of the Reformation. So they were like, all of life is sacred in that sense. No matter what you do, what service you perform, no matter what role you have, do it to the glory of God. That was, that's Protestant. Now, let's bring this tangent back to the civil magistrate. The civil magistrate now has a vested interest in what? Religion. A, a people that are thriving and growing personally, financially are going to be a happier people, a more settled people, a more content people. And again, flowing out of Christianity, not just wealth in general, and they're going, to be, they're going to be more productive even in the, in the terms of, of government assistance, right? Because the, the government, look, 
we don't live to supply the government. The government lives to serve the people. That's, that's God's way. Uh, and, and Rand Paul was right. The Constitution was not written to, um, for the sake of the people, per se. It was, it, was, it was written to keep the government in check, to, to aid the government in how to perform their duty so that we, the citizens, could prosper in what we put our hands on lawfully. Not illegally, lawfully. And of course, we have moved to the point where prostitution is considered gainful employment. Um, uh, illicit activities, gambling, all of these other things that were once considered off limits. Guess what? Now it's acceptable and promoted. Because in one, by and large, because God is, in part of God's judgment is withdrawing light. When God withdraws light, then darkness has a prevailing effect. More and more people call good evil. That's part of the judgment. And of course, God in his grace has left a remnant of churches to preach the gospel and to preach against this and to preach the light and to show people what the light is, who is the light, what they need to do to repent, repent of their sins and all of these things. And, and we see that there are people that respond to it in a positive way and there are people that what? Harden their hearts to it. Because God has withdrawn his light in, in, in drawing his light enough that the, that the country begins to suffer economically. It suffers physically. We are, we are obese. We are sick as a nation. We are mentally ignorant. We are re almost retarded when it comes to logic and reason. I mean, it, it, we... All of this, are, these are embarrassments. These are punishments. Punishments for being godless, for being ungodly, for the church not doing what she has been created to do and made to do and gifted to do. And the civil magistrate has certainly, we've allowed the civil magistrate to throw off God's constraints and not call them into account. I mean, every congressperson, senator, mayor, governor, local, federal, whatever the case may be, if they have in some sense sinned and then called into account, they ought to be excommunicated from their churches and it ought to be made a big deal. Why? What did we learn this morning? When the church fails to, 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 or, adorn herself with the task and the gifts that God has given to her, what happens to society? They run to shame, sin. They're unashamed. 
But when the church is at her height, when the church is at her strength, her zenith, if you will, and they are using the gifts and they're promoting them and they're standing strong and they're, they're, they're complimenting each other. I mean, churches serving one another. And here's what I mean by that. You excommunicate one person in one church. They just go right over and are allowed to join the other church and go, ah, oh, we understand. Those are just a bunch of fuddy-duddies over there. Come on over here. We're gracious and we're loving. We'll accept you as you are. Are. that's what I'm talking about that's how weak and fractured the church is and that happens all the time I, I, I believe that most of the people we've ever excommunicated in my previous church were all accepted by other reformed churches as ah, no big deal and I, I, I without even a phone call That's the state of the church. The civil magistrate, let's bring this around and, and open up for some questions and answers. The civil magistrate, brothers and sisters, has a vested interest in religion. Religion. And that's where paragraph two comes in. Paragraph two sets forth the proposition that Christians can can execute the office of a magistrate. Here's what it says. It, says, it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto in the management whereof they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, peace according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. Then the wholesome laws would be those natural laws. So for that end, they may lawfully now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasions. So notice what it says they can do. They are allowed to, um, to execute the office of a magistrate for what? For the maintenance of piety, justice, and peace. For that maintenance. Who better to understand Piety, justice, and peace than a Christian. Who better? Again, you, I want you to think world religion. I want you to think, okay, who would be best suited for this position? I'm here to submit. It'd be the mature Christian. It'd be the one who's tasted the grace of Jesus Christ, the one that understands what it is to be in need of a savior and what the Bible says about social matters. But not only are they to maintain the commonwealth, the citizens with piety, justice, and peace according to the laws of the land, but they are also able to, to wage just war. Now, what is a just war? I mean, a just war is a war of defense. A, a just war, and that doesn't mean you can't go on the offense, but a just war is a war that protects your property and person and your liberties. If a nation begins to be threatening and they prove that it's a legitimate and valid threat, then we... The, the civil magistrate, a Christian civil magistrate, has every duty to protect the nation. 
with war. Um, let's see. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are biblical ideas. The founding fathers did not create that or invent that. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When those things are threatened, we have a biblical grounds to protect it. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Against all enemies, anybody want to finish it? Foreign and domestic. Now that's the oath of the military office. That they will protect this land and constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. When life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is threatened. Why? Because this is a Christian way of life. Another aspect that you find in India or you find in these poor countries is depression. You find prostitution. when, when, When you break... When life breaks down and then there are very few avenues of, of providing food for yourself and your family, you do, you're subject and tempted to do immoral things. Some of that may be prostitution. Some of that may be selling your own children to others for work or for other things. Why do I mention that? Because that hap- that's happening. That is taking place. You can go watch a dick- documentary on India right now. They are doing these things. And my concern is when we bring that culture into this country, where are we going to be in 50 years? Where are we going to be? And that's why I keep telling you, and I know I sound like a broken record, and maybe you may get tired of hearing it, and that's fine. I'm not offended by it. I get it. But it matters. It will touch you. It's going to have an effect on you. Maybe not this moment, but it will. When it touches your children, when it touches your grandchildren, when it touches your nieces and nephews, when it touches people in your surrounding family and now this family is being fragmented because of the cultural setting that it finds itself in, culture matters. And culture is a direct reflection of religion. Cleanliness laws, morality, justice, peace, piety, integrity. Many of these cultures, brother, don't care if, there's, if you're lied to. It's okay to lie to someone else for the barter, for the transaction, for the money. Or any, that it's not like the Christian culture. In fact, do you know the Catholics believe that if you were a pagan 
and this is why it's addressed in our confession, if you were a pagan, you didn't have to keep your promise to a pagan. If you borrowed money from him, you didn't have to pay him back. The reformer said, not true. If you borrowed money or you gave that person your word, whether they're a pagan or, or Catholic, or you keep it. You pay them back because God's law stands in that matter. So religion has a direct effect on how you live. Now, here's the point. Point is, we need to get serious about our Christianity. And the more serious we get about our Christianity, the more we're going to see the use of a Christian magistrate. I hope I preach it to the point where you go, I'm tired of hearing it. Yes, Christian magistrate, of course, but that's where we need to be. We need to be advocating for Christian well, civil magistrate. Okay, let's go. 